Is all that recorded? <laughs> no. It's a shame. How else are people going to know about the inner workings of my notes? Now we'll know about the inner workings of my notes. Okay. So we were learning chapter 19. And we were comparing the way in which fire relates to its source with the way that the godly soul, regardless of the level of the godly soul one might possess, relates to its source. And the analogy of fire, we said that the fire, there are two things that make fire's relationship with its source distinct from other things' relationship with their source. Remember, in the kind of worldview that the Altair is using for this analogy, there are four elements of everything in the terrestrial plane. What are they? Earth. Earth. Fire, water, air. Air, fire, water. Okay, not in that order. Okay. And these elements always naturally tend to return to their natural place, their source, as it were. What is the source of the element? Where is the source of the element of the earth? The ground. The ground. Did you say Hashem? (laughs) Good. Where is the source of the element of water? Above the ground. Above the ground. Where is the source of the element of air? Above the water. Where is the source of the element of fire? In the sphere of something. It is above the air and below the lunar sphere. So it's above the air? Yeah. Yeah, that space between what we call the atmosphere and the moon's orbit. That's where, where, where. Now, so when you let go of a rock being predominantly of the element of earth, it will tend to fall. If you let go of water being predominantly the element of water, it will tend to. It will go, but it will, but the, between the water and the rock, the rock will sink and the water will go on top of it, right? Okay. But fire, right, the flame does something different, right? The flame, it's not simply that it goes back to its source, but when it's back in its source, what happens to it? It's extinguished. It's extinguished, right? And even when it's not in its source, it is never at rest being away from its source. Again, if you see a rock sitting on a table, if you didn't know anything about the rock, you might think that the rock is perfectly... That's its natural place. After all, it's not, it's not doing anything to try to you know, hop off the table and get onto the floor. Whereas the flame is flickering to escape the wick. It never settles outside of its source. Right? So those characteristics of the flame, that it never settle, it's never settled when it's outside of its source. It's always seeking to return to the source. And returning to the source entails a kind of self-extinguishing. Right? Those characteristics are true of the godly soul in relationship with God. That the godly soul is never settled being outside or external to God, and the godly soul seeks to reunite with God in such a way that would result in the total annihilation of the godly soul. Right? We then spoke about how that annihilation is not an absolute, right? Because again, if something is re- returns back to its source, you can't say that that is a negation of its essence. I gave an analogy for this, although it wasn't a perfect analogy. If you take a flame and you throw it into a bonfire, what happens to that flame? That flame loses any distinction from the general fire, so it ceases to exist as an entity. But you can't say its being fire has been extinguished because it's just been subsumed in a larger fire or a drop of water in the ocean, right? So in an analogous but not identical way, if something, if the flame reunites with its source, 
So then whatever is truly essential to being fire remains, but the form that the fire exists as the entity of the flame ceases to be. So the true godly essence of the soul is actually being fulfilled by reuniting to its source, but the soul as an entity in its own right is lost in the process. Okay, and that's the, that, is a, that is the desire of the godly soul. The desire of the godly soul is to reunite with God in a way that is analogous to the way the flame desires to reunite with the fundamental element of fire. And then we started to say that this, even that this desire is a desire by its nature when we started to discuss the term nature. Right? And so we first had to disambiguate that sometimes we mean nature as in the nature of a thing. And sometimes we mean nature as in that which explains why the thing is the way it is, right? So, um, you know, if you're reading a scientific magazine, right? And it says, nature has determined, right? Or nature causes, right? You could just take out that word nature with a capital N and replace it with what word? God, right? But if I were to say the nature of fire is... Um, to be hot, the nature of water is to flow. Obviously, I wouldn't want to put God in a substitute for that because I'm talking about the characteristics of created things, right? Okay, so this use of nature, the characteristics of created things, um, there are, we wanted to understand what exactly do we mean we say that's, the, that's its nature and to what degree this desire can be described as, as nature because I said he's ta- using this as a borrowed term rather than saying it's properly its nature. So one thing is about when you say something is a natural characteristic, what you mean to say is a natural property, you mean to say is that this is something that, does, that um, follows directly from the thing itself um, and is not being artificially introduced or imposed onto the thing. So let's just give some examples. So we're, and I gave some examples at the end of the last class, so we'll just use, start with those. A human being using... Verbal, spoken language, natural or unnatural? Natural. A human being using written language? Unnatural. Unnatural. Okay? Now, I don't want to get into arguments about these things. It's actually very hard to prove that something is natural, but I want to get into kind of basic evidence. What would basic evidence be that spoken language is natural and written language is unnatural? Children speak. Children speak without any, any, any concerted influence, right? But, in fact, if a child doesn't start talking on their own, eventually the parents get worried, right? Whereas literacy, we know, is something that society has to decide to value and then implement a program to make it that people are literate. Make sense? Um, Okay. What would another example of something that is natural be? And I want you to contrast it with something unknown. I'm going to give you, throw it out for you to give me an example. Something natural, and then something that would be used as a good contrast to how this is natural, but that's really not natural. It's natural for humans to walk, unless there's something wrong, and it's not natural to drive a car. Good. Make sense? Okay. Now, one thing that we should know is that things that are natural can be impeded, right? Just like you can artificially give something a property it doesn't naturally have, you can also artificially impede Right, so for instance, if a child doesn't learn to walk or to talk, right, we understand that there's something, either something has broken within the person or something in the environment that's not allowing it. Okay, good. So there's another idea, though, about nature, um, not 
which is which, which follows from that that if something is natural, it doesn't really need to be explained the way an artificial thing does. So if I see a child not walking, I need an explanation. Why are they not walking? If I see a, a human being who is literate, I need an explanation. What happened to make them literate? But if I see a, a human being who is you know above the age of say you know two-ish who is using verbal communication, I don't ask the question what happened, what made him able to talk. Like, well, you're just not aware of a, you're not aware that this is a human being, or you're not aware that this is the nature of a human being. But if you were aware of those things, like that is sufficient, right? Or if you see a child walking, you don't say, what happened that enables a child to walk? I mean, that's just, okay. So once we have labeled something as natural, right, we don't look for, it doesn't, it doesn't require further explanation. When something is labeled as unnatural, it does require further explanation. Now, what is true is that that kind of analysis can be, be, be um, relative. So in other words, if, I, if, I, if I'm thinking of the person as just a whole thing, a human being, I don't really, I'm going to ask the question to explain why the child is able to walk or why the child is able to talk. I mean, they're a person that's just natural for children, right? But if I don't look at the person as a, as a whole thing, right? I want to break the person down into specific parts, right? So then I might ask a question like, okay, um, what is it about the skeletal structure of a human being that allows them to walk bipedally on two legs and say, for instance, dogs can't? You see what I'm saying? Like, once you change what you're looking at it, you might no longer consider that natural. Okay. So I might say it's natural for the child to speak, right? But now, if I instead of thinking about the child as one single thing, I, I realize that there's a lot of different parts of the, the, the psyche of a human being. And I want to say, okay, well, what parts of the psyche give rise to speech faculties, right? That's a different question. Okay. Um, so... I use this example for it. I could, I could say, why is fire hot? And just answer it as, well, it's just the nature of fire to be hot, right? But I could actually ask a slightly different question and say, some chemical reactions produce heat and some don't. Why? And at that point, I would need some explanation, right? So you see how I can, I can change how I think about it and now I no longer think of the thing as natural I look to explain it, but then what you end up doing is you find something else which is also just natural, right? So what we, the thing that the, the, the natural property does in our thought, because it's not artificially imposed, is it ends up being the, 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 the thing that explains everything else and it itself isn't explained. Make sense? And so different kinds of disciplines, something might be related to as natural and then another discipline, it might be not related to as natural. So here's an example. Let's take the difference between economics and psychology. In economics, we have people. And people live in societies, and there is an infinite, there is, there is, there is desire for, for goods and services, and there's limited resources. And so something needs to happen to figure out how we're going to deal with that problem, right? And how that works out is this, right? That's what economics is all about, right? I want stuff, you want stuff. There's only so much stuff to be had and it takes energy and, and activities to get the stuff, right? So how are we going to interact? So the fact that people have desires for things and people want things and people need things is just kind of taken for granted. That's like the natural state of human beings, right? But now if you were to study psychology, you might turn that and say, well, like, okay, 
not all human beings desire all things or human beings are made up of different parts. Why do they have those desires, right? And now you're trying to explain those things based on other things that are considered more fundamental. Okay? So what the way you think of something is natural, it shuts the discussion down. You don't need to think further. Okay? Does that make sense? So I want you now to have this formulation in your head. By labeling something as natural, I'm declaring it doesn't need explanation. Now, I might mean that in an absolute sense, or I might mean that in a relative sense. Good? Okay, now there's another aspect of something being natural. We touched on the standard of the last class also. In Hebrew, the word for nature is, anyone know the word for nature? Teva. teva. Okay, and teva is related to the word for a coin, um, which is matbea. How is a coin made? It's, it's minted, right? Which doesn't mean you put like mint leaves on it. <laughs> Although maybe coins would be you know, tastier that way. I don't know. Um, I don't know if you should put coins in your mouth, actually. Probably not a hygienic thing to do. Um, you take metal and you impose upon the metal a shape. And that shape gives it its significance. And then the people interact with the metal based on its shape, right? That's the kind of, you know, if it's you know, a 10 shekel coin or a 3 shekel coin. So the idea is that the things which are really natural have been imprinted or impressed upon the creations by their creator. So when we say that something is natural in like a theological sense, what we mean is, okay, well, the fact that this thing has these characteristics is because God made it that way. And therefore, in some deep sense, it has no control over its own nature. In other words, there's this kind of, it's a little bit counterintuitive, but there's this kind of opposite ideas in nature. They're not really opposites, which is that if something is really natural to you, right, that it's just, it doesn't need to be explained what happened to make you have that thing, have that characteristic, have that property, have that quality, then that means that that thing was um, imposed upon you by God, and so you can take zero credit for it. And in a certain sense, it's, it's like a prison, it's like a shell that you're stuck in. And we touched on this. This is why, like, the idea of attributing all of human um, endeavor to just natural processes kind of robs a person of a sense that they have agency and free will, which is obviously a very bad idea, um, both from a Torah and Lahavdil mental health perspective. Okay. So, if I were to say that, let's just use a, an example um, positive magnets attract what kind of magnets? Why? It's their nature. Now, when you say it's nature, what are you asserting? You're asserting that that phenomena is not explained by some other phenomena. And you're also asserting what made it be that way? God, right? Or nature, the capital N for the naturalists who don't like to believe in a creator God, right? And therefore, we understand that the positive side of the magnet has, or the positive side of the magnet has absolutely no agency or power to decide not to attract the negative side, and the negative side has no power or agency not to be attracted to the positive side, right? Good. Make sense? Okay. Now, the paragraph um, we're on page eighty. And it, nevertheless, this is its will and desire by its nature. And the next paragraph starts, nature is an applied term. And I said here, applied means like a, borrowing the term. So not using it in its strict meaning. For anything that is not in the realm of reason and comprehension. In other words, 
do we want to say that the soul has a nature to desire to be unified with God and lose its own identity as a result? We don't want to say that's strictly speaking the nature of the soul. We are using the term nature in a borrowed sense to highlight something about it. Okay, so let's explain. What, if we were to say that the nature of the soul is that it seeks to reunite with God and as a result loses its identity, if that would be its nature, that would mean who is responsible for the soul um, yearning to reunite with God? God, not the soul, right? And if that's the case, is this an expression of the soul's service of God, the soul's relationship with God? Okay. And that would really undermine, right? In other words, this, this, this touches on a very fundamental issue that people have. Now, if I say that you have a natural love of God, there's something deeply disturbing about that. Which is you're taking, I'm taking away, if I'm saying you have a natural love of God, I'm taking away your authority over your own feelings, over your own, over your own desires. It's like you deep down have this desire, right? It was imprinted upon you by your creator and you can't do anything about it. So that's just the way it is. You can accept it, you can deny it, but that's there. That doesn't feel very good, does it? Okay. Are we saying that God has come along and imposed upon the godly soul a desire to reunite with God? The same way he imposed upon water its fluidity and rocks its their solidity and uh, you know, cats their solitary nature and dogs their sultry nature. Are we saying the same thing? No. We're not saying it's strictly a nature. We're saying it's similar to nature in a respect, which is that when, something, when you make a claim that something is natural, you're not trying to rationalize it anymore. You're not saying this makes sense because of this other thing. It's like, just the way it is. So there, in other words, natural, saying something is natural is a way of accepting the irrationality of something. And so we're saying here also, the fact that the soul desires to reunite, reunite to God in such a way is an irrational desire and what is a word that we use when we talk about something that doesn't need to be rationalized? We call it natural. But it's not strictly speaking the nature of the soul. So a hypothetical, if the soul were to decide that it doesn't want to reunite with God, could it do that? Yes. Yes. So how come the soul doesn't? Because she's not to. Well, at some later point, could it change its mind? What? Yeah. Sure. Well, this gets into a very, very interesting question, which is, what is the effect of making a choice on yourself? But you notice how there's a different issue than what you're being imposed upon you? In other words, like this. There are two things that I cannot do, okay? Um, I cannot fly, okay? And then I cannot dance on this table, 
in the middle of class. Those are two things that I cannot do. What's the difference? One, you actually can, but you're choosing not to. No, both I cannot do. I cannot dance the table in the middle of class. When you physically can't, and when you can't. So, 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 in other words, one is I'm lacking the ability. I'm lacking the ability to fly. The other is that there is something inhibiting me from doing it. Right? So I just want to start there, right? Just because you can't do something, there's different types of not being able to do something. And not being able to do something, I lack the ability. Well, okay. And there's things that I don't lack the ability, but I'm being inhibited, right? I think most people have a lot of social inhibitions that prevent them from doing things. That doesn't mean they don't have the ability for that thing, right? I don't need to be inhibited not to fly. I just lack the ability to fly, right? Good? Now, where does that inhibition come from? That's a good question, right? I mean, I didn't create myself, right? So my lack of ability to fly is clearly just, you know, due to my creation. How I, I was created as a being lacking the ability to fly, and that's the end of that. But I do have the ability to dance on the table with a class. So where is this inhibition coming from? Social norms? Social norms. Okay, Good. So the inhibition is in some sense being imposed upon me, right? In other words, I am, I am a creature who is naturally social, right? <clears throat> naturally takes social expectations seriously. And since there's social norms against dancing on the table in the middle of class, right, that creates a kind of inhibition, right? Okay, good. Now, Could I over oh, could I overcome that inhibition? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, in other words, that inhibition is not absolute. It currently prevents me from dancing the table. Why does it currently prevent me from dancing the table? Because there's nothing strong enough to overcome that inhibition. But if something that was strong enough to overcome that inhibition came into play, then then I would, right? Okay. So what is something that's strong enough to overcome inhibition? Alcohol? <laughs> no, alcohol does not overcome inhibition. Alcohol does something different. What does it do? So that, that I'm very happy you brought that up. I wasn't planning on going there, but, but it does something very different. It doesn't help you overcome inhibition. Blocks it? Right. It weakens inhibition. And we can get into why it does that, right? But So in other words, it's not that you are overcoming more inhibitions. It's that you just feel less inhibited to begin with. Right. That's why you don't actually become... By the way, what do we call it when you, when you feel inhibited, but you overcome it and, 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 and you, you, feel, you, you have the sense that you can overcome your inhibitions and do things anyway? What, what's that called? Another, sense of, another word for be, feeling inhibited is having fear. Right? Fear is a very strong sense of inhibition. So what helps you overcome fear? Courage. Courage, right? Okay. 
Right? Now, that's a self, there's, there's a lot to that, right? So it's not like when you drink, you become more courageous. That's not what happens. You just become more foolish. So you don't need courage. That's, that's why it's not brave to tell people what you really think when you're drunk. It's because you're just, you don't, the normal inhibitions aren't there. Okay, good. But, okay, so to overcome your inhibition, so, but the inhibition is not absolute. Proof being is that I could overcome. Now, one thing is a sense of being able to be stronger than the inhibition that's courage, but I also need a motivation. You'd be like, why should I overcome the inhibition? I mean, like, one thing that's clearly lacking right now is, do I have any incentive to, over, to dance on the table in the class? Not really. Okay. So you need a, some kind of set of things, some sort of, of incentive plus courage maybe gets you to overcome inhibitions, right? So when I ask the question, what I can and can't do, you have to realize like, these are, these are, you have to, you can mean many different things. Like there's what I can't do because I lack the ability. There's what I can't do because I'm inhibited. There's what I can't do because I will never have the necessary courage or incentive to overcome that inhibition, right? You mean many different things by, right? So now, if I choose not to do something, can I do it? Think about it for a minute. If I choose not to do something, can I do it? Not in that moment. Good. So let's make that a little bit more formal. As long as my choice is still in effect, right? Then I cannot do it, right? So this is an interesting thing to consider. The act of choosing limits you. Now, if I chose not to do something today, can I do it tomorrow? Not I chose not to. I cho- today I made the choice not to do it. Does that mean that tomorrow I can no longer do it? No, what does it depend on? If you choose not to do it tomorrow. No. I just want to, I chose, today I made the choice not to do it. Tomorrow will I be able to do it? Yes. Yeah. Depends. depends. On what? If tomorrow you don't choose not to do it. Okay. No. Then that would be a different choice. What? If not for me today means it's not accessible tomorrow. No, because then it has nothing to do with that choice. You choose. What's the thing that prevents me from doing it today? Your choice. Okay, so if that choice is extremely powerful and has a long duration, then will it still affect me tomorrow? Yeah. If that choice is more shallow or weaker, will it still affect me for longer? So this is the thing to understand is that we often think of choice as simply directly to the behavior, but choice actually has a kind of internal thing to it. If I make a choice not to do something, I have kind of altered my stance with that thing, that that thing for me is off the table. That change I brought to myself. How, just like inhibition, right? We can ask the question, how strong is the inhibition? How lasting is the inhibition, right? Sometimes you can overcome inhibitions very simply because the inhibition was very shallow and short duration, right? So just wait and it'll go away, right? Sometimes, it, right? So, so the same way I can have an ability to do something and then inhibition prevents me from doing it, right? And then maybe that inhibition goes away or maybe I overcome the inhibition. Something else that's not inhibition can make me not do it. It's my choice. So then the question is, well, how deep, profound, and long-lasting was that choice? If that choice is very deep, long, and profound, and long-lasting, then years later I still can't do the thing that goes against my choice because I'm still under the effect of that choice. Now, do you make choices like that every day? What would be an example of that kind of a choice? 
An example of something I choose something today, and because I've chosen it today, it has a fa- it, that choice doesn't allow me to act not in accordance with that choice. And that choice that I make today still has an effect on me a year later, two years later, 10 years later. Not the consequence of the choice. Not I made a choice to rob a bank and now I have to deal with the fact that I'm going to prison. I don't mean like that. I mean the choice, the way the choice affected me, not, not the way my behavior affects. What would be an example of a choice like that? We would hope, but we're all so mature enough to realize no. But we idealize that, that you're, what, 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 what we're saying is when you get married is that you are making a choice, right? Not, you're making a choice about how you're going to relate to this person for the rest of your life. And we're hoping the fact that you make that choice continues to influence you the rest of your life, right? So we aspire to that, okay? But now you brought up an example. And again, I'm gonna say about everything, every one of these things is there's always gonna be these kinds of choices that we aspire to be that way. Rarely it is that way, but marriage would be one, right? right? When, you, when you're under the chuppah, right? And, 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 and the groom, the chassan says, and, and you accept the ring, I assume that you're hoping that he's intending and, and, and I assume that he hopes that you're intending that you are deciding to treat each other as husbands and wives should treat each other for the rest of your life, knowing full well that you don't know all the circumstances you're getting into, and that is what you, you're trying to make that kind of a choice to the best of your ability, right? Because if you didn't think that's what happened, you probably shouldn't be marrying the person, right? Now, you're also mature enough to aware that human beings are quite limited and our ability to make choices that are that absolutely transformative is, is, is hard to achieve. So I think it's more aspirational, but okay. What else would be like that? Hopefully. Again, the same thing, right? If someone converts. Conversion, right? You're seeing these are things that are about redefining your, who you are, right? They're not so much about, am I going to do this particular thing? Choices that involve redefining who you are, right, in very, very deep ways, are attempts, the best of our ability, to make choices that are not supposed to, like, you know, they, they still have an effect on us even after the moment of making a choice, right? And the more powerful that decision is, the more, the longer and more profoundly it will affect us, right? Okay, I'll give you one of the example, tshuva. Right? The ideal tshuva is where God can testify that he would never sin again. Okay. By the way, if you make choices about behaviors, it's much harder to do that. It's strangely easier to make a choice that from now on I will do everything honest. I will, and from now on I will, be an, I will be honest in all of my endeavors rather than from now on I'm never going to steal. Because you're directing it at a deeper part of yourself. Does this make sense? Okay. So now, let us assume that your ability to choose was unconstrained. You had a... You, 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 you weren't an embodied human being that has... You know, it's hard to achieve your maximum. You can make a choice fully. Well, take that logic forward, right? The more, the more, the stronger the act of choosing, the more, the more absolute its effect is on the person, right? So if you, so if you made a choice in the fullest sense, 
would you ever be able to revoke it? The very, you know, let's think about it for a second. The fact that you could revoke a choice means some part of you has remained unaffected by the initial choice. Because if, if all of you was totally affected by the initial choice, what's left of you to choose otherwise? Okay. So the deepest choice is an act of self-definition that is, you know, you become defined by, or truly defined but by. How is it your choice if that's, any, like, that's how you were created? No, I'm not talking about anything. No, we'll mention anything about being created. I'm saying the thing that made this absolute choice. You made that. I'm saying if you make, if you I didn't say you did. If you were to make such an absolute choice, then what would what would have determined what would have determined that you are the way you are? You are your creator. You only made that choice because of the way your creator made. No, no. Then it's not a choice. So, Mark, is there any soul that didn't make that choice? Nope. Once you make that choice, is there any of think about think of think about this for a second, okay? If you make a choice that's that total, how much will it affect you? If I make a choice about something superficial in the moment, it will affect me very limitedly. If I have the ability to make choices that are much more profound, right, they'll affect me more profoundly, right, and have a longer duration. If I make a choice that is, that is, my ability to choose is really unconstrained, then I can make an absolute choice. If I make an absolute choice, then what? How much will it affect me? Completely. So what part of me remain, will be unaffected by that choice? Untransformed by that choice? Nothing. Which now means... Is there any part of me that stands outside that choice to then reconsider it? No. Now, is that a way human beings make choices? Can a human being choose like that? No. Right? That's, you know, you can, this is an important thing to know. There are many things that we can get better and better and better, but then there's, math is called an asymptote. You can approach it but never get there. Right? I can, you can get faster and faster, but you never actually get to the speed of light. You can get stronger and stronger, but there's a point at which, like, you can't get any stronger because literally you'll break your body. The, the physics don't allow you to get, okay? As a, as a human being, there is a limit to your capacity to choose. Now, but what if you are a godly being? Is there a limit to your capacity to choose? So I'm not gonna talk about you, the embodied human being. I'm just talking about the soul. The godly soul's desire to reunite with God is the result of God imposing that desire, imprinting that desire upon the soul or the soul's choice. Remember, the soul is godly. So which one makes more sense? It has to be a choice. So then why are we calling its desire natural? Because natural is something that was, you were created that way. Why are we calling it natural? Because what other thing do we mean when we say something is natural? There were two elements I said about natural. One rational. is that right, it doesn't need to be rationalized or explained. So when I encounter something, this, when I encounter this, this desire because I can't explain it, it seems like a just natural thing, but is it truly natural? It would be truly natural means the soul would be just have created that way. Okay, this is a mistake. Very often people think, oh, why does the soul have this desire to reunite to God? Because that's just how God made it. That is wrong. If that's how God made it, then? It wouldn't be a choice, right? And it would be actually not godly at all, right? Rather, what do we mean? that the soul has chosen to identify so strongly with God and the soul being godly can do that in a 
absolute way that the soul's desire to reunite with God is to such an extent that the soul is never at rest when it's distinct from God. And the soul's desire to reunite God can only be fulfilled when it loses its identity completely within God. But that is a result of the soul's choice. Now, the soul can choose that absolute way. I, as a living human being with, you know, who has a brain, maybe don't experience choices in that absolute sense. And now I might make choices about like how much I want to be in touch with my soul. That's when we get to that later in the chapter. So this desire is not a natural desire in the literal sense of the way every other phenomenon that's natural is natural. It's only natural in the sense that it's not rational. So we borrow the term natural. Okay. Just said that it's irrational. It does. Nature is an applied term for anything that is not in the realm of reason and comprehension. That's exactly what it says. No, but like in the sentence before that, this is will desired by nature. You're saying why bother having a term and then explaining what you mean by it? The simple answer is things need labels. It's very hard when you don't label things. And the labels hopefully should be informative. And that's the simple answer of what he's doing. He's saying this love is natural. What do I mean by natural? Now from now on we talk about the natural love, you understand, right? The soul has made just a very deep choice. And, this, and, and, and so it's not so much, you know, and, 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 and when you want to think about it, understanding natural phenomena is a good way of understanding as long as you know we mean it in a very limited sense. We don't mean it, take it, right? So if you say, oh, my soul is just programmed by God or designed by God this way, that's not really true. That's not how the soul experiences it at all. Okay. Um, by the way, there are things that God can't do. Can someone tell me something God can't do? Comprehend himself? Generally speaking, according to Kabbalah, that would be true, at least not completely comprehend himself, although it's debatable whether that's entirely true according to Kabbalah. And according to many other thinkers like the Rambam, he definitely can. But there's something that actually clearly says, God says, I can't do this. Make you choose... No, he... No, no. He cannot replace the Jewish people with someone else. Now, why can't he do that? Does he lack the ability? Is something inhibiting him? He made a choice. He made a choice. And God's choices are what? So what's left of him to choose otherwise? And it's actually an explicit statement of our sages. To replace them with another nation, I am unable. And the, and the idea here is, is that his inability to do so is not a lack of ability, but that the choice precludes it. Okay. So in a very kind of, in a very interesting way, the, this love of God is kind of reflecting back or mirroring God's love of the Jewish people. God's love of the Jewish people is a kind of an absolute choice on his part. The soul makes an absolute choice to identify with God on its part. 
That absolute choice to identify with God means that the soul is now in a state of desire to reunite with him. To, it's a point of total loss of identity and is never at peace when, it's, when, it's, when it senses its distinction and separation from God. Okay? But this is not like your soul has been programmed to love God. That would be an incorrect understanding. Okay, now, what about this desire is irrational? In our case, the, inf- the inference is that, the inf- that this will and desire of the soul are now within the realm of reason, knowledge, intelligence that can be grasped and understood, but beyond grasp and comprehensible knowledge, intelligence. Okay. Now, why can't this be understood? Why can't this desire be understood? So I'm going to ask a general question. Can you understand desires in general? No? No? So like the whole realm of trying to make sense of anybody's desires ever is just futile. Like if you say, I want something, it's never, it's never fair to say, well, why do you want it? That's just never a fair question. Give me an example of something that you, that you desire and that wouldn't be fair for me to ask why you desire it. Or not you, if it's too personal, it's just a person generically. Pick an example. Food. Well, I mean, that's pretty obvious. You desire food because without it, you'll die. So that's, that's pretty rational why you desire food. So I need a better example. I mean, unless you're claiming that you know people who don't die without eating, <laughs> then it would be kind of irrational why they desire food. To have fun. To have fun? Okay. I can explain why people desire to have fun. First off, let's be clear. What do you mean by fun? Very generic. Very, very ambiguous. Do you mean by fun, like engaging in activities that have um, a lot of stimulation. Fun out of it. <laughs> no, I mean, like, what do you mean by fun? Like, what, what do you mean by fun? Yeah, sure, that's a good... yeah. Activities that have a lot of stimulation that are pleasurable. Um, any other characteristics you want to fun? Love. What? Love. Love? Something that don't have to entail love. Like, like, something that's not stimulating is generally not fun, right? Mm-hmm. Something that's... So something that's... Um, stimulating but extremely painful is generally not fun. I right? generally associate fun as things that are stimulating and pleasurable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, any, any other characteristics you want to incorporate in what you mean by fun? Is building a house fun? Perfect. It could be, right? Okay, well, so here's the thing. Um, human beings, okay, Human beings experience okay, um, a tremendous amount of anguish when they are understimulated. Okay? And it would make sense that they would have this characteristic because being stimulated means that you're interacting with your environment, allows you to f- function and flourish. Right? So it would be a warning signal that you're not interacting with your environment properly when you're understimulated. The same way, like, it makes sense that hunger is a painful experience. It means you're not having nutrition, you need to survive, right? So it makes sense that God would create a being that needs to navigate its way around reality to have a kind of basic threshold of need for stimulation, right, as a warning signal that you're not properly engaged with life, right? And it would also make sense that that would have to be bifurcated into painful and pleasurable things to kind of know what to engage in further and what not to engage in further, right? So it's pretty rational that people want to have experiences um, that are sufficiently, but not overly stimulating in the realm of positive, you know, kind of stimulation. 
it gives them the sense that they're navigating life properly and succeeding. Now, hopefully those things are coming from things that are actually, it's not a, mis, it's not a, mis, a, a mixed up signal, right? You know, if you're hungry when you don't really need more food, that's a problem, right? If you feel satiated when you do need more food, that's a problem. So you might be experiencing fun from something that's not actually helping you navigate through the world, but the desire for fun makes a lot of sense. So I, I did take the fun out of it, but any other desires you say are irrational? That you can't make sense of that we just shouldn't ask why people feel this way? Love? Love? And love is pretty, love is very easy. Human beings, human beings are capable of amazing things when they function in groups. So we need group bonding, love, voila. Groups are, our groups are incredibly sophisticated and rich and complex, right? And therefore we have love in many different facets. We have romantic love, love that comes through shared experiences, familial love, right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It allows us to form multi-layered social networks that allow us to achieve our full human potential. It makes sense that we would experience love. Also, love is outgrowth of value, right? Because human beings have ability to value things, therefore we seek, we identify and want to be close to the things that we value for personal or group enhancements. That's why we may love particular things rather than just the people, whether they be objects or, or values or, or whatever. So, desires are not hard to explain. There's a whole realm of psychology that explains the desires, right? Now, you might disagree with my answers. I want to point out, even if you disagree with my answers, the point is, the question is a reasonable question and the answers are plausible answers, right? Can you think of any desires which are beyond the realm of reason? It makes no sense to ask about them whatsoever. Do any of the bored ones? Certainty? Well, obviously. Imagine you woke up in the morning. Imagine you woke up in the morning and got out of bed. But it turns out that the, uh, that the, it turns out that the um, floor was really um, a, a pit that fell into like a volcano. So... But you didn't know that because when you looked down, it was the floor. It just mad, it right, instantaneously turned into a molten pit of lava, right? You couldn't function the world that way, right? Okay. Um, you, you, right, if you start going through them, you're saying, right? In fact, you can basically boil them down to beings that need to navigate around in the world and, navig and are able to achieve things using group dynamics basically gets you all of those, right? So given that you're the kind of being that is... It has to navigate itself around the world and, can, and is more successful and does it using group dynamics, you get the need for certainty, the need for variety, the need for significance, the need for love of connection, growth, contribution. All right. Oh, sorry. Add the fact that you have to come into being, you get the growth contribution. You get the growth part. Because if you're not growing, then you're not manifesting fully and, and able to do the stuff that you should be able to be able to do. And you sense that and that should cause you some kind of discomfort, right? Otherwise, you won't do it. So, um, what does what? what uh, how about like you know something silly, like very cliche, right? Like the wife wants flowers for Shabbos, and the husband's like, "That's why does she want flowers? It's so stupid." Like, if you want flowers because they look nice, let's get some plastic flowers and like you know put them there and they look nice. Not the why not the same? The There's something about the life of the flowers. The what is it about the life of the flowers? They're more beautiful than the thought that he put is he put into thought into getting into getting flowers so there's actually there there's there's actually interesting things first off one of the things is that is that the the there is an idea and again this doesn't have to be true your point is is the point is the fact that the questions are legitimate and the answers are plausible that's not the point there's an idea 
that a way of showing certain kinds of devotion and attachment and value, right, is the wasting of resources on others. Emphasize the word? Wasting, wasting of resources. Not being economical about it. Right. Right. So you don't feel better when your husband says, and I shopped around and found the cheapest flowers available. <laughs> right? You feel better. It's like, I know that they were the most expensive ones in the shop, but it was worth it anyway. And, and I, I, okay, that's very gendered, but the same thing is true also. Um, you know, the same thing is true. It also dynamics. All, but the point is, you can explain. And again, the point is, even if at the end of the day, you're going to come with the right reason, the question is still a legitimate question, which shows that it's within the realm of reason, right? So desires are within the realm of reason. You can rationalize desires. Okay. There is one kind of desire that you cannot rationalize. And that is the desire to lose yourself completely in something beyond yourself. And emphasis on the word completely. Why can't you rationalize that desire? You cannot rationalize the desire to lose yourself completely in something beyond yourself. Every desire, when you rationalize it, the rationalization of every desire basically boils down to how does this enhance me? If you stop being you you as a result of filling your desire, then the only reason why that is significant is because you value it. But it has no, there's no self-enhancing quality to it. Let me say that again. Every time you rationalize a desire... What you're doing is some version of how do you become enhanced through attaining this thing, whatever the this thing is. Now, because you can be enhanced in many different ways, so there are many different kinds of desires, right? But if the end result of achieving your desire is that there is no you left to be enhanced in any way, shape, or form, then the only way it makes sense to say that this is the fulfillment of your desire is simply because you desired it. But then why would you desire it if it doesn't enhance you in any way? And that is not rational. Going back to the flame, right? We would say it's rational for the water to flow into the ocean because the water is getting back to its natural place and it's still being itself. But the flame, we think of this as kind of irrational because in what way is the flame enhanced by returning to its source? And the answer is, it's not. It's not. In what way is the soul being enhanced by returning to God? It's not. Yet it's still significant for the soul to achieve that. And that's weird. That's kind of irrational. Why? It's significant for me to bring about something which, include, which, which entails the total loss of self. So there's no sense of self-enhancement at all. Now, I want to be clear about this. You have to be a little bit broad in your thinking. Because if someone's willing to die for something, that's not actually the same idea. It can be very rational to die. If you strongly identify with your group or your values and you're willing to die for those things, right? That's rational, right? Because what you're saying is that, what I, I, that, that my, this other part of myself is the more significant part than, say, my continued biological survival. Okay, that's... that's you know, it makes sense. Okay. But if you're going to lose, your, if you're, you lose yourself entirely as an entity at all, you have to value something beyond yourself so absolutely. And the question is, well, why would you value something that absolutely if it's totally beyond you? 
and you can't refer back to yourself because you're referring back to yourself, then you're, then you're not valuing it totally, absolutely, and sort of totally beyond you. And so there's something irrational about this type of, 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 of identification. Right? This, the degree to which the soul identifies with God is not rational. Do souls in like Gan Eden have the same level of desire to connect to Hashem's actual essence? That part of them exists there, or is it fully manifest? Is an interesting discussion. Well, it's not fully manifest by us either. Right. Right. But to be fair, the soul is not a, the soul is not the soul is not fulfilling this desire by being in heaven, as we spoke about before. Because in heaven, all the soul is doing is having a more clear sense of God. But it's not losing themselves and being subsumed within God. What? You were talking amongst yourself. No, it's fine. You had an Okay. Okay. So, why should you have a relationship with God? Well, God can meet all sorts of needs. Need for certainty the need for variety, the need for significance, the need for love and connection, the need for growth, the need for contribution, right? Maybe you even have a God-shaped hole in your heart that can be, and so what you need is God. Even then, it would still be rational for you to love God, right? It would be irrational to love God because, because not God fills a need or, or, or makes you more complete, but the opposite. The sense that there's something wrong with you being distinct from God, you being separate from God. And so this, this identification is so absolutely so strongly that you, you, need to, you need to flee your very existence as your own entity so there's nothing left of you other than him. That is not a rational thing. There's no way to explain why a being would choose that. And yet the soul chooses it. So in that sense, we, you borrow the term, we say it's a natural. It's just, it's just natural to the soul. But we don't mean it's literally natural like it was imposed on it by, by the creator. It's a result of the soul choosing to identify with God that strongly. Now, which part of the soul is capable of sensing things beyond itself? Anyone know? Chachma. Remember Chachma? Way back when we went about Chachma, chapter 18? Aha. Uh-huh. For this nature stems from the faculty of Chachma found in the soul. So in other words, the Chachma of the soul so strongly identifies with God that the result is that as far as the Chachma is concerned, what should, what should happen to the soul? It's not just the Chachma is open and passively accepting of God. The Chachma has sense of the truth of God and chooses to so strongly identify with God that as far as the Chachm is concerned, what should happen to the soul? To everything, actually. It should all dissolve into God. And so the Chachmah generates this strong urge, this strong desire for the soul to cease existing as a soul and return to the state of only being God. And what would happen to the Chachmah at that point? It would also cease. And does the Chachma bothered by that? No. Not remotely. <laughs> and this fits with what we said before, is that the highest level of Chachma actually precedes reason, is beyond reason, right? 
not the basis of reason. And where, and, and it's in that sense of Chachma, therein abides the light of the Ein Sof Blessed Be. The true sense of God is that part of the soul. The part of the soul that chooses to identify with Hashem so absolutely and so thoroughly that as far as it's concerned, nothing should exist other than God, including the soul, including the sense that the soul has of God. Thus, it's like the flickering flame seeking to reunite with the elemental source of fire. It's there that God is truly sensed. And so now we understand not just that why Mesiris Nefesh is something that um, is capable, is something that every Jew is capable of because every Jew has Chachma. We understand where the motivation for Mesiris Nefesh comes from. The Chachma's sense of, of, of God is such a strong level of identification with God that its desire is that there should not be anything other than God, including itself. Is that how you love your parents? Is that how you love your friends? Is that how you love your spouse? Generally not, right? Okay. Now, some loves may have characteristics that are similar to that, but that element is very, very rational. Is it even a chassid one says like the love of a child and a parent, it's only, it, 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 it's not truly irrational, why? Right? Because at the end of the day, you love this person because they are, come from you, or you came from them, right? All right. Now, so we are done with that topic of discussion. What's going to happen now is, this chapter is actually a bit long, so I want to outline what happens next. What happens next is we're going to start talking about the idea of holiness and where Hashem is present. Um, and the relationship between Chachma and holiness and the sense of God. And then what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how there's actually different levels of Chachma in the soul. And the soul enlivens, the Chachma enlivens the soul. And what we're going to end up getting to is that for the soul, therefore, separation from God is like ultimate death. And being subsumed within God is like true living. And that's what's being triggered when we encounter Messias Nefesh. So it's going to, I just, you know, let's. Separation is death. Separation is, is, is absolute death. And living. Is and unity is living. And unity is living. And there's no middle ground. And there's no middle ground. Okay. In other words, in other words the, the soul, the, for the soul, what does it mean to be truly living? To be yeah. subsumed within God. Yeah. And so it's, it's yearning for that. What does it mean to die? It means to be separated from God. And that's going to be that. And that's what we mean by this natural love. And so, but to understand that in, in detail, we have to explain what is... What, what is the relationship between, between Hashem, Chachma, life, Klippa, which, you know, and then we also have to explain how the Chachma relates to the rest of the soul, right? And then we're going to talk about why, the, why this only shows up in martyrdom case, not all the time. And what this is doing is trying to explore really this, this kind of relationship that, that for the soul, life is being totally subsumed within God to the point of losing any sense of identity at all any sense of your own entity at all. And death is separation from God. And the soul is kind of like the flame that is flickering to kind of get back to that place and absolutely can't stand the other one. So that's the, the avowing. There's going to be a lot of details. I want to stop here and ask, are there any questions on what we've done up until now? I, I do want to emphasize, it's important to appreciate how irrational the godly soul's love is. I don't mean to say that in a negative thing. I just think, one of the things that messes people up when they try to make Tanya applicable is if they try to take something and distort it. If I try to 
make sense of why my soul loves God? Am I getting, helping myself get more in touch with this innate natural love or am I actually blocking myself from it? I said I'll ask a question a second, but before that, I didn't want The more I try to rationalize to myself why it's so important, why God is so great, why it's so important to love God, why God is so meaningful, et cetera, et cetera, the more I do that, am I making it easier to get in touch with my godly soul's natural love or harder? Harder. So there's actually like a tension between the first approach and Tanya and the second. They're, they're almost opposites in a way. Mm-hmm. The more I try to fathom God's greatness and significance and as such elicit a love for him, I'm working off of the premise somehow that that love can be justified and rationalized. And the natural love is, is the exact opposite of that. It's this, this absolute identification that my soul has with God on a very deep level. And, the, and, and, it does, and there's nothing rational about that. And there's nothing... That, and then it becomes being in touch with that or not being in touch with that. So you can actually in a certain kind of way get one kind of love of God actually makes it harder to access the other type of love of God. You're supposed to pick or like... Ideally, you're supposed to synthesize it all together into one giant beautiful um, symphony of relationship with God. The different loves and fears all coming together. But, um, you know, for starters, you do what's more... Be more successful at. Okay, so are there any things that I said there that I wanted to make sure that's very clear? The rational part is important to emphasize that because that's very practical and uh, not to think of that as a negative thing. It's just different. Okay, are there any questions, any things that are outstanding from this part? Okay, so we will we have a few Thank minutes you. left. Thank you. Oh, we're done? We have five more minutes. Oh. I just didn't want to move on to the next topic without, like, if there was something that I brushed over, you didn't get, you know, because this is like a, a shift. Okay. Now, this is a general principle in the realm of holiness. Holiness is only that which is derived from Chachma, which is called Kedesh Ayin, the supernal holiness. Okay. So, I'm going to give you an analogy. Chachma is compared to oil. Okay. If something is holy, what does that mean? So let's imagine everything in the world is food. Which types of foods would be holy? Fried chicken. Fried chicken is very holy. What's not holy? Salad. Salad. Unless? Unless it has oil. Unless there's some dressing on it, right? oil. And within dressings, you know, we, want, we, want to, we don't want that, that low-fat stuff, right? No. Okay. The idea is, right... Thing, oil, right, it saturates into things, right? And the idea is that every creation, right, may be lacking in Chachma. It may be Chachma itself. It may have a little, little bit of Chachma. It may have a lot of Chachma. But the Chachma within the thing is what gives it its holiness. So what do we know? We know that we said that we spoke about this before. There's something called the Sitra de Kedusha and the Sitra or the side of holiness and the side of so imagine you go into the restaurant, there's a buffet. And one side of the buffet, and so you walk down, one side is labeled fat-free, the other side is labeled normal. Normal food. Which would be the side of holiness? Normal. The normal. And you look at everything, and there's like a fat-free equivalent. Now, you know, maybe in terms of health things, you the fat-free is the better one. But, so that's the idea. So when God creates the world, everything creates kind of two versions of everything. One that is being suffused with some degree of chachma, 
and one that is devoid of the Chachmah. Because to be holy means the holiness comes from the quality of Chachmah. Now, why would holiness come from Chachmah? And this is going to have to do with the idea that Chachmah is uniquely suited to have the presence of Hashem be sensed there. So the Chachmah being part of something gives, means that that thing now becomes a window, a vehicle to, for the sense of Hashem to come into reality. And when something is devoid of Chachmah, that means that the sense of Hashem is not coming through that part of reality. Good? Okay. So now what he wants to do from this point is kind of really flesh out um, this Chachma being the vehicle of God coming into the world, into reality, and then the opposite of Al-Klipa who doesn't have that. And that's going to end up becoming synonymous with life and death. Okay. Um, I want to stop and... This is not in the chapter and... We have a few minutes, I'll go, I'll go into this. It's kind of parenthetical. There is a myth about Hasidus, which is that the reason why you're supposed to think about God is so that you can get um, yourself inspired and motivated and then do mitzvahs. Have you ever heard something along those lines? Okay, this is a myth. Do you know why? Because you can do mitzvahs without being inspired. And, moreover, you can get yourself inspired without thinking about God. So then what's the point of thinking about God in order to get yourself inspired to do mitzvahs? Well, if we go to our basic Kabbalah chart, right? so you have Chachma, Bina, all the different spheres, right? How do you get any godliness, any holiness into, say, Malchus, given what we just learned? How's that going to happen? You don't have to know very much. Just look at the Kabbalah chart. How are you going to get any, any godliness, any holiness into Malchus, which is the lowest sphere? No. What? From Chachma. From Chachma. But you notice that the Chachma is very far away from Malchus? So how's it going to get to Malchus? Through all other spheres. It's going to have to travel through the other spheres. Yes? So if we go back to like the basic idea is that how does contemplate the greatness of God work is that you're, there's some degree of sense of God that starts in the Chachma. Not the Chachma we're learning about here, a lower level Chachma. And then that is digested through Bina, right? And then that brings about the emotional responses which then infuse you with passion in your mitzvahs. So really, what are you trying to do? You're trying to bring what to what? You're trying to bring Chachma all the way down to the lowest level. And would it help if you get yourself inspired and motivated to do mitzvahs in a way that was devoid of the Chachma? It's like filling up your gas tank. Is it help you to go to the gas station if there's no gas actually flowing into the tank? Or for that matter, if the gas is not getting from the tank to the engine, right? So for whatever reason, it's very important to get the sense of God, of Chachma, to the lowest level. And in a person, Chachma is the highest level and their physical behaviors are the lowest level. And so you want to draw one into the other. 
And one way to do that is contemplating God's greatness, and we're now learning a more a different way, which actually taps into a deeper level of Chachma. But the idea is that this idea that holiness and everything comes from Chachma means that really, in a certain sense, the job of a Jew is to deep fry everything in oil. It's to suffuse everything in, with oil as much as they can. Which means the first step in anything is to find, get, get some sense of the Chachma and then to draw it forward. And really, the first approach to Tanya of contemplating the greatness of God is an attempt to do that. And what's great about it is it's extremely transformative of the person. Its downside, other than being that not everyone can do it, is also you're tapping into a lower level of Chachma. This approach that we're learning now is tapping into a much purer form of Chachma, and it's going to bring it down to the lowest levels. It just does not going to be as transformative along the way. And in fact... The idea is like when you ask a person to like do a mitzvah, just like a simple thing, like I'm telling you, ask the person like light Shabbos candles, and they say yes, what's happening? Why did they say yes? Which part of them motivated to say yes? Mitzvah. You asked them to do a mitzvah, and they said yes. What part of them motivated them to say yes? Their chachma. Their chachma. And then they do the mitzvah. And so what's happening? You've, you've made a kind of bypass route, at least for a moment, between the Chachma and the lowest realm of the physical world. Okay. So this actually becomes like a general idea. It's brought up here for a specific reason, but I want you to realize that it, it applies in many, many respects. Right? Chachma is the, the linchpin between holiness and anything else. And since Chachma often starts up at the top, you need to get that Chachma down into lower levels. And there are different paths and different approaches. Each one has its own advantage. Okay, that was parenthetical, but I figured with the end of class, you just pass me to say it. Okay, tomorrow, Bez Hashem, we will go into some detail as to Chachma and Klippa and how they are opposites and how that translates into life and death itself. Thank you. Now you can say thank you. Thank you.